You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Acts chapter 2. I hope you're in the habit of uh, picking up a prayer list on your way in on Wednesday evenings. And this really should be your guide for for your prayer uh, during the week. Praying for our church, for our church members and our missionaries and and our our church needs, things like that. So make sure you do that. Don't don't get out of that habit. I think maybe we got a little bit out of the habit with COVID and we weren't handing those out. We didn't have them for a while. And let's just make sure that we we do that. We do want to be, as a church family, you know, no one else is going to be praying for these things. And so we need to be sure that we are. Um, we're, we're in our series again, and Why Baptist is what I'm calling it. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be reading. And uh, this is probably really the best summary on the subject that we'll be dealing with tonight in our Why Baptist series. Calling it two, it, 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 the, the, the Baptist distinctive, if I can get it out, is the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are important ordinances for most churches. And for Baptists, they've been a distinctive for a long time in the way that we do them, the way that we conduct them. And so I want to just read a few verses here uh, to show that we are on good scriptural ground when it comes to our ordinances. Act chapter 2, it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, at 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, this is the day of Pentecost, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And we see this, the early church were already involved, obviously, and the gospel being presented, souls being saved, and once a soul is saved, then baptism, and then once a baptism has taken place, then they are taught the apostles' doctrine, they continue in the, doctrine, in the apostles' fellowship, and in the breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread implies then the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and we, we stand on good ground to have the two ordinances that we do. And tonight, it's going to be a little different because I, I, I don't really have time to look at each ordinance in great detail. I'm going to kind of lay, set the table and lay the groundwork. And if you'll think a bit about this, like this is the introduction, and then next week would be part one, and then the following week would be part two as we actually look, up the, look at the ordinances. But sometimes these messages are hard uh, because you don't really know how to wrap it up. And it's kind of like a Christmas present that's oddly shaped. You're just not really sure how to wrap it up. So you just maybe throw it in a bag and just set it out, okay? And uh, I, hope, I, don't, I hope not to do that to you tonight. But, but it may be a little bit harder to apply. But 
Um, but there is profit in just teaching. And I hope that you'll see that tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for, for your truth. And I thank you for these, these important truths that our church is guided by and that Baptists have been guided by for a long time. And not just Baptists, Lord, but Biblicists, people that follow God's word. And we're thankful we have God's word as a guidebook. Thank you for the truth that you give us and make clear to us. We pray that you'd help us have our minds and eyes and hearts opened tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your, well, actually, I'm not sure that you have to keep your place in Acts 2. We're probably going to spend a lot of time turning tonight, but turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as I was wrestling with how to present this tonight, I, I, almost, I almost packed it in. And I almost preached another message that, that God has really laid on my heart to preach. And, and, and I was almost convinced to do that until... I went back to one of the early messages in this series and I started reading the reasons why we need to study doctrine. There's some verses in 1 Timothy that Paul gave to first that Paul gave to Timothy that I just want to remind you of. It's been a while since we looked at these, but in case you ever get to the point where on a Wednesday night if we're looking at doctrinal messages that you think, "Well, it just really doesn't do much for me. I'm not really sure how profitable this is let's look at a few verses look at first timothy chapter four it says in verse six um sorry i'm in the wrong i'm in second timothy first timothy chapter four verse six if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things thou shalt be a good minister of jesus christ nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained and so part of the, the way that I, it helps me to have a clear conscience in just some biblical doctrinal teaching is because Paul said that you're a good minister if, you, if all you do is, is, is remind the people that are listening to your preaching, if you just remind them of doctrine. If you do that, that's a responsibility of you as a pastor. And I can tell you this, I'm just going to be transparent probably in, uh, in many ways tonight. I, I feel the pressure of giving you applicable preaching. And, and, I, and I, want the, I want it to be applicable preaching. Um, and you hear the word, what's the word, the, kind of the buzzword now today? Um, there's a word, it starts with an R and everyone's talking about it. They say it's this kind of preaching. They say relevant preaching. It's got to be relevant. You know, it's got to be relevant. Well, if all we did was open God's word and ask the Holy Spirit to apply the word to our hearts it's relevant and so I, I have to that helps me sleep at night sometimes when I think okay I preached this message and there maybe wasn't a lot of response or no one seemed to be that excited and you know you go through these things I'm just being transparent tonight you go through these things as a pastor you want you want everything to really take you want everything to have to have an impact but, but honestly, it helps me to know and read verses like 1 Timothy 4, 6 and know that Paul said to Timothy, you're a good minister if you would just simply teach doctrine. Just remind them of the things that have been taught to them. Give them truth. Look at verse 13. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Till I come, Paul says, give attendance or attention to reading, to exhortation, 
to doctrine. That's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to give attendance. We're trying to give attention to doctrine. Our preaching and our teaching at Eastside should always focus on the importance of doctrine. We can't get away from, from it. We can't loosen up. We can't, we, we can't get rid of some of it to draw some more in. No, we should rather learn to articulate it in a way that draws others in. Because a lot of churches these days are saying, no, we're going to get rid of the things that people don't want to hear. When I think we probably ought to actually focus on the things that might even be a little more controversial, but articulate them in a way that starts to make sense to people. And rather than just get louder, no, no, articulate it. First Timothy 4.16, let's look at that verse. It says, take heed unto thyself and under the doctrine... Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. God's doctrine has power nothing else does. It has power to save. We know that Jesus Christ himself said that truth makes people free. I don't know how that happens, but truth makes people free. And I, I found myself even recently sitting across from someone that is, that is obviously, in, they're not saved and they admit that they're not saved. And then in my own spirit, I'm struggling. Okay, well, what do I, how do I say to convince them? What should I say to kind of take this down the right angle and the right path? And in my mind, though, it came to my mind, no truth makes people free. If all I did was read the scripture, expound the scripture, that's all someone needs. I don't have to be a great orator. I don't have to be a lawyer. I don't have to have a convincing argument. I just need to know God's word. And if I do that, I should have enough. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And so that's the most important responsibility of your pastor is to labor in the word and doctrine. And I don't want to focus on this part, but a church has a responsibility to honor those that labor in God's word. And, and I appreciate the fact that you, that you do that. It's a blessing. It's hard for me to believe that, that a couple of Sundays ago, was uh, we've been here two years now. And I look back on all the things that, that you have done to show us honor, whether it's on, on birthdays or, or, or for our children or my wife's birthday or church anniversaries. I mean, it, it's, been, it's just been nothing but a blessing for us. And, you know, Pastor Spencer spent so many years being a man who, who did things the right way. You, you gave him double honor for his labor in the word. And I just appreciate that, that, you, that you're not having to be coerced to do those things. You do that out of the love, the love of your heart. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, it is my responsibility to labor in the word. It's your responsibility to somehow, however the Lord leads you, to show honor. And, that, and that's a hard thing to preach about as a pastor. Um, but, I, but I also want to preach the whole counsel of God. And, 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 I just, and I'm not going to give you definitions or how you should do that or how often you should do that. But I'll do my responsibility and you do yours and we'll all answer to the Lord and hopefully hear a well done someday. Amen. First Timothy chapter six, it says in verse one, let as many servants as are under the yoke count themselves, count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. There's a strong connection between what we believe and how we behave. Belief impacts behavior. Our behavior impacts our testimony. And in a day in which truth is under constant attack, and it is, 
I mean, it is under constant attack. We must be convinced of our positions. And it's called Why Baptist. This series, I'm calling it Why Baptist, but it's really Why the Bible. You know, one distinction of being Baptist is we do our best to stick to what the Bible teaches. And, you know, the Reformers kind of grabbed on to to that Latin phrase, sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone or only scripture. And and, um, they kind of embraced that. But even the Reformers coming out of the Catholic Church, they didn't really loose themselves from all the traditions. And, and I'm not saying anything against that. I'm not saying against anybody that believes in that, that set of doctrines. Um, but, but you should evaluate your set of beliefs. And if there's some tradition or something that you hold to that God's word does not explicitly give you the license to do, then, then, then examine that. Be careful of that. We, we, we want to be sure that we don't marry God's word with traditions that we've received because it's God's word. It really is sola scriptura. It is God's word alone. So that is kind of the lead up to the, these two ordinances, the ba- baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so far we've spelled out, we've, we've begun spelling out Baptist. Somebody came up with a great acronym. And I'm not sure the, the actual origin of it, but Baptist B, does anybody remember what the B was for? Biblical authority, right? Uh huh. And then the A in Baptist, autonomy of the local church, right? And I think I, had, I think I had between those two, I had about eleven weeks of messages between just those two little letters. So um, last week, then um, Brother Ruckman preached the P, priesthood of the believers, and he fit eleven messages into one sermon <laughs> last week, right? <laughs> So really, we just have preached the same amount of material. It took me like 12 weeks to do what he did in one. Oh, that guy. Okay. <laughs> Although I do think our interpreters are probably, you know, they've still, they have ice on their shoulders from last week. So he's preached a lot a few times here, these lately here. So tonight then is BAPT, two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. And I'm really just going to, again, set the table and I don't feel like we can really get into it and do it justice tonight um, as much as I'd like to. But an ordinance. We have the word ordinance. That's what we call it, baptism, Lord's Supper. It's a Latin word. It signifies something which is ordered, something that's commanded. And it, it comes from that which is authoritative, an ordinance. Uh, if there's a city ordinance. Uh, when, when I think of ordinance, I think of a government ordinance. And, if, and there's only two times in the New Testament that ordinance is used. It's used by Paul in Romans. It's used by Peter in 1 Peter. And both times it refers actually to submission to governmental authority. It refers to a government ordinance. And government, a government will issue an ordinance to keep order or, or protect its citizens. Um, many of them you know, have to do with public safety. They have to do with public health. They have to do with, uh, with morals, general well-being and respect of other people. Um, there are also plenty of ordinances that have to do with control, but I'm not going to talk about those tonight. We, you know, I, I do think that obviously we are to submit to our government, but our government leaders are flawed, just like every one of us. And we have to find a balance there. But ordinances are there to remind us of certain things. They're to remind us. You know, if I, if, if I have a speed limit sign reminding me what the speed limit is, that will likely keep, keep me and someone else safer on the road. It just came out tonight that 
Uh, or today, I think I was reading about Tiger Woods. You know, we know he's the golfer and, and he, was, he had a major accident last month and, and went off into the ditch and, and had major damage to his legs. And they came out today saying he was going 85 or 90 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone. And they're, you know, wondering what was the cause of the accident. So um, I, I think I know, but maybe, maybe they'll figure it out. You know, and I, I'm not, not trying to be, uh, you know, hard on him. I mean, we've all made mistakes like that, but a speed limit sign in a residential area is there for protection. It's a reminder that if you don't practice safety, um, you could hurt yourself or somebody else. It's a reminder. And in Christian vernacular, if you think about it, the ordinances are also reminders. A, a baptism, and, and I, again, I don't want to get ahead of myself because we'll do this more, but a baptism is a reminder of what? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When, when, and that's why, and again, I'm going to get way ahead of myself, but that's why we practiced immersion here is because it, it is a picture of the death and the burial. And there's a, in a burial, um, it, Jesus Christ was buried. He was, he was not partially submerged. He was buried. And then he rose again. And, and, and that, the gospel, that, that baptism pointing to the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel had an impact then in the person's life that's getting baptized. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reason that person is saved. And that's, that, that has taken place on, uh, in that person's heart. And so, you know, baptism is a picture. It reminds us. The Lord's Supper is a picture. It reminds us. Of the death of Jesus Christ, he says, until he comes. We're to remember that until he comes. And these are reminders. They're pictures. They're, they're not the actual thing, which is where some denominations may, may trip, get tripped up or, or maybe go to a different direction. We believe that they are symbolic. They're important. They matter. But they're pictures. They're, they're symbolic. They're not, as Brother Ruckman even preached last week, they're not sacraments, meaning that they don't physically or literally help us in our salvation process and and uh you know we believe that salvation is by faith in jesus christ alone and uh, you know we have had this uh, and just to let you know uh, in the last few months we we've had somebody join Eastside baptist church and 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 really enjoyed them and got to was getting to know them and after just a few services they they came back and said pastor i just can't do it and i said well what's you know, what do you mean? What's, what's wrong? And he says, you know, I was raised a certain way and I believe that in communion there's, there's a, a, something that literally is happening with the, the bread that you take and it literally is conveying grace to allow you to have the faith to be saved. And, 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 and listen, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that somebody that, that believes that is a bad person, I'm just saying I don't see that in Scripture, and yet this person just couldn't get through that. And they said, I've, I've got to then withdraw then my, my membership at Eastside and I'm going to find a place that you know, I feel more comfortable. And listen, I understand. I respect that. I just wish that, that they would focus more on what the Bible has told them and rather than what they've received in, in terms of tradition. And, and again, I know that I don't want that to come across harshly. Um, you know, we all have to do that. We all have traditions that we think, well, this is the way it needs to be. And if it's not, I'm just not sure I can go with it. No, what does the Bible say? 
Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the ordinance that Christ left to New Testament churches to observe until he returns. And because they're ordered commands, then we believe there are scriptural ways to do them. We don't want them to become rituals. We don't want them to become empty traditions. And in many instances, the ordinances have been, have been uh, so modified by men that they don't resemble the biblical pattern. And we don't want to do that. God is clear when it comes to these ordinances. And, and I'm just going to read what some other men have said about it because they said it better than me. H.G. Weston said, In studying the New Testament account of the church, we find besides moral duties, certain acts commanded by its founder, with a capital F, Jesus Christ, significant of certain truths enjoined on the members of the church. They, these things have, are required, is what he's saying. The, the founder, Christ, is requiring certain things of its members. Such acts are called ordinances. E.H. Johnson said this, an ordinance is an outward institution appointed by Christ by positive precept. In other words, and I like the way he says that because it's not saying don't do this or don't do that. No, it's saying do this to remember this. It's a positive precept. And he says, to be observed by all his people to the end of the age, commemorating an essential gospel fact and declaring an essential gospel truth. Of these two, or there are two, baptism and the communion. And by the way, Lord's Supper, communion, Lord's table, um, they're all interchangeable. They mean the same thing. The, so he says, of there, these there are two, baptism and communion, the initiation and the consummation of the Christian life. These ordinances are the gospel in symbol. They commemorate, declare, and typically embody the whole Christian system. They are the true symbols of Christianity, divinely appointed and all sufficient. I like the way he says it because he says it's the, the initiation and the consummation. You know, meaning baptism kind of pictures the beginning of your Christian life. And the Lord's Supper you take until he returns and you'll take that until the end of your Christian life. And I love the way that the imagery is there. And I also like the fact that in some ways you're submitting to Christ in an outward manner at the beginning. And you're supposed to submit to Christ in an outward manner all the way through the end. And it is a picture of the life of a disciple who is all about self-denial. I mean, from the very beginning, when in baptism, we are to surrender ourselves. We are to say, God, I, I will do this as a public profession of my faith in every step along the way. I will continually submit myself and surrender myself to you as a follower, as a disciple. And I love the imagery because it's not just ritual. It is a picture of our approach to God. It's one of humility. It's one of surrender. It's one of, of wanting other people to see what is taking place, taking place on the inside. So if you think about that responsibility, we have, a, we have a responsibility then to keep the ordinances in a way that points to the gospel. So the Bible teaches two ordinances, and, and I'm just going to talk about this tonight because I think it's important, and, and I know in certain parts of the country this would be more important. important. Again, Brother Ruckman talked about this um, Last week, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Just to be clear, these two ordinances weren't developed over centuries. Meaning, it's not like Jesus Christ started the church and then, and then like five or six hundred years later, something morphed. It wasn't an act of, of a process. Um, this was something that Jesus Christ literally initiated. He, it said, J.M. Pendleton said, Christ is the only institutor of ordinances. Apostles had no discretion in the matter. 
they could only teach the baptized disciples to observe all things. Like Matthew 28 says, his will was to them as to his followers now the supreme law. It was optional with him to institute many ordinances or few. He could have, he could have started as many as he wanted. He could have had a, had a hundred. He could have had a thousand. He just gave us two. It was his pleasure to appoint two, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. These appointments of Christ are the church ordinances in the sense that they pertain to his churches, not to the world, and are committed to the care of his churches, whom he holds responsible for their preservation in their original purity and integrity. Some guys just say it way better than I ever could. And there are those who practice, there's a third that some people claim to be um, an ordinance, and that is the act of foot washing. And again, Brother Ruckman talked about this last week. And, and they take their authority from John 13, which is the Last Supper. And if you'll remember that in the Last Supper, Jesus Christ did wash the feet of his disciples. And then they carried that in to, then into the Lord's Supper and had that Last Supper. And he was, you know, gave, gave very clear instruction about his body and, and the blood and the picture. And foot washing was, was common in that Eastern culture. And um, that, especially that first century, you know, it was hospitality. It was a matter of hospitality. And most travel back then was done on foot. And if you've ever been to a, another country or even a third world country, um, you would know that most travel in many places is still done on foot. And I mean, it's amazing. When I, again, my wife and I went to India and, and I'm surprised, I'm shocked then at times how often people would come and, and the missionary there would tell us that they wa- how many miles they walked to get to church. And sometimes it literally two, three hours they would walk to come to church. They would walk on dusty roads and, and they don't wear closed-toed shoes. And so they would come in and their feet were obviously dirty. So it's that, that culture, that mindset. And if a host failed to uh, provide for a guest to, to wash their feet, it was considered rude. So the washing then would typically be done by a servant, and, uh, that which made what Jesus Christ did there in John 13 all the more notable. Because he's, he, he wasn't just a servant, he, he's God himself. And yet he was on his knees and he was washing the feet of his disciples. And that's why Peter um, it was so against the thought of Jesus Christ washing his feet. And he says, well, if I can't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter, like, you know, like he always does, goes to the other extreme. He says, watch all of me then. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I love this spirit in Peter, but, but it really was, it was out of the ordinary for Christ, who they would have looked at as their, their authority to be the one on his knees. And, and so it was just really more of a cultural thing. And yet some have taken that to be, you know, an ordinance. And his instruction there really was more cultural than it was an official church ordinance. And, and we can think, you know, I think about the woman who, who knelt down there in Luke 7. And with her hair, it says that she washed Christ's feet. And, but she was doing that because of the feeling she had of who she was. She was a sinner. She, was, she had lived a wicked lifestyle. She was humble before God. And she wanted Jesus Christ to show that she was humble and that she loved him. And, and we know, that, so she was involved in that washing of the feet. But we know that, that she didn't actually even get saved till the end of the chapter. When he says, thou, thou faith hath made thee whole, go thy way. 
And so even then the picture, as, as beautiful as it is, it's not one of God's saved people coming together and doing this ordinance for each other and then, you know, carrying on with the business of the church. And part of the reason we know that, I believe that too, is it's not mentioned again in the rest of the New Testament except one time in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And it's talking about a widow and it's talking about the qualifications of a widow that should be provided for. And it says if she's been somebody who's been hospitable and she washes the feet of her guests, you know, then, you know, this is the kind of person that you should honor and take care of. Um, but, it's, but that was no, no way in context of a church ordinance, it was simply saying that if someone is a humble Christian, this is something that they're not going to be above. They're willing to get on their hands and knees and wash people's feet. And praise the Lord. Aren't you glad that we don't have to wash each other's feet still? My wife hates feet. And I'm just not sure. My feet in particular. I'm just not sure. It'd be tough. You know, it's a humbling thing. I mean, it's just, and can you imagine then walking the dusty roads and, and then cleaning? It is a matter of humility, and, and I think the spirit that Jesus Christ was conveying should be a part of our lives. We should be humble enough to say whatever it is that somebody else needs, I'm willing to do it for them. And, 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 on, and the other part would be that there's no act of service to God that I'm above. I'm willing to get down and serve and be humble. I'm willing to do these things, but I don't believe that it's a church ordinance. And so there are three logical requirements to be an ordinance. And so we're going to read a few passages and and then start wrapping it up. Um, The three logical requirements to be an ordinance. First is that it's instituted or introduced in the Gospels. Instituted or introduced in the Gospels. Look over at Matthew chapter 3. And that's part of the reason that foot washing wouldn't qualify is because it doesn't meet this criteria. Matthew chapter 3, we see John the Baptist from the very beginning. John the Baptist's ministry was baptism. He was, I mean, he was preaching, obviously he was preaching and he was the forerunner of Christ. But as people repented, he baptized. Okay? This was an important part in the Gospels. Look at Matthew 3. Verse 1, it says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle, and about his loins and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him, Jerusalem, or then went out to him, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan confessing their sins. And we could read on about how he said he wouldn't even allow those to be baptized unless they brought forth fruits of repentance. And I think we're getting away a little bit from the idea of repentance in church culture. But, um, you know, repentance is, a, is important to, to salvation. And you, you cannot be saved unless you come to terms with where you are in your sins and by faith turn from your sins to Jesus Christ. Right. Repentance. And in John, these people were coming to him and, they, and people were probably wanting to be baptized because everybody else is doing it. We're that kind of people. We're human beings. 
And we want to be involved in what everybody else is doing. It's like when a new restaurant opens in Sioux Falls, don't even try to go there for like four months, okay? Because everybody's eating there. Well, everyone's coming to John, and, and he said, unless you have the fruits of repentance, I will not baptize you. So baptism, and this isn't the same baptism necessarily um, as of the New Testament church. Um, and we'll talk about that at another point. Um, but, but baptism was an important part. It was a public profession that you're no longer identifying with the old religion. You're identifying with something new. And they would come and then Jesus Christ himself. We know that Jesus Christ himself walked a long way to come and be baptized of John the Baptist. So if Jesus Christ himself knew that baptism was significant enough for him to come and be baptized of John, and John was baptizing others, we then find out in John chapter 4, the Pharisees took note that, that they, they started talking among themselves and saying, now Jesus has come up and, and we're seeing him baptize more than John the Baptist ever did. And we know that he wasn't actually the one doing the baptism. If you look in John 4, you don't have to tonight. But he, his, his disciples were the one baptizing for Jesus. But we know that he had many converts. And what were they doing? When they came to him and they brought fruit, meat to, for repentance, we, we saw that they were getting baptized. So baptism is in the Gospels. And therefore, it meets that qualification. Is the Lord's Supper in the Gospels? Well... The fact that Lord's Supper starts in the Gospels is probably a good sign that it's in the Gospels. Look over at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. It says in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And we know what happens after that. His betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. We could look here. We could look in Mark 14. We could look in Luke 22. We could look in John 13. And all of these have the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper taking place with Jesus Christ and his disciples. There's no doubt that it's an ordinance in part because it's introduced in the Gospels. But not only that, an ordinance must, is then practiced in the book of Acts. Meaning, if, if it was in the Gospels, but it stopped in the book of Acts, and we don't see any carrying on of the ordinance, then probably it, they didn't view it as something that was, that was meant to be carried on, like foot washing, for instance. But, but let's look at some verses on baptism. We already read Acts 2.41. Um, let's look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. This is Philip. He goes down to Samaria. Acts chapter 8, eight 5. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And so look down in verse 12. There's some other details, but we know what he's doing now. Look at verse 12. But when they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women, okay? And I've got all kinds, and you can find these too, all kinds of examples in the book of Acts of people getting baptized after they got saved. Um, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch later in this very chapter. You've got Paul getting baptized in Acts chapter 9. You've got all of these different cases of people getting baptized. I think we all agree 
Baptism is in the book of Acts, right? Amen? Okay, all right, so let's, let's uh, move on to the Lord's table. Is the Lord's table. We already saw in Acts 2, they were breaking of bread. Acts chapter uh, 20, verse 7, breaking of bread. You don't have to turn to these. I'm just going to give them to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the breaking of bread. Um, look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't know if we'll read this one now. I might be getting ahead of myself. Like I said, this is the gift that was hard to wrap. So I'm just maybe throwing it out on the table here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, you see this phrase many times in this, in this passage. Um, let's see. Now in this, um, let's see, I'm trying to find it. I got Oh, look at verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. When ye come together, therefore, and to one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. They were coming together for the Lord's Supper, but they weren't doing it for the right reasons. But the fact that they were coming together for the Lord's Supper meant that they were practicing the Lord's Supper. He doesn't say when you come together for foot washing. He says when you come together for the Lord's Supper. So I think we can all agree then that, that both baptism and Lord's Supper, we've seen it in the Gospels. We've also seen it in the book of Acts. We're going to come back to this, but look over one chapter earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So this is another one. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 um, it, the third part of the third qualification is that it would be instructed in the epistles. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud. No, I'm sorry. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm, I'm blowing this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 10. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... That ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Okay, so leave it to the church at Corinth to be the church that has to be dealt with with divisions, right? We know that the church at Corinth was the church that, that had the issues. They had the, the divisions, the trouble. Look what, they were, look what they were struggling over. Verse 11. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Verse 12. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect." Now, this is a roundabout way to make the point, but we are seeing then, though, that baptism was part of the New Testament church in the epistles. Paul was writing here. He's writing these letters. Baptism is a part of the church. Now, they were having issues with baptism. They were, they were saying, well, I, I was baptized of this guy, so I'm his disciple. I was baptized of him, so I'm his disciple. There were contentions, but it's a roundabout way to show us that baptism was practiced. There are some that say, well, baptism is not necessary um, for, for Gentiles. I mean, they really say that. They say, that when Jesus gave the command, uh, uh, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them, it was for the Jews. And, and they were saying, well, we're no longer what the old, the old Jewish religion was. This is something new. 
And, and yet we see that this is the church at Corinth. They were certainly Gentiles and they were being baptized. Now they were, of course, twisting it and there was division and there were issues with it, but baptism is taking place and he's making it obvious. Baptism is there and we can look over in 1 Corinthians. This is where I meant to go earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's go over there. We're gonna see that the Lord's table, the Lord's supper is also obviously here in the epistles of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, for first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And here's the phrase again. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and everyone is hungry, and another is drunken. Does that sound like the kind of mentality that we should have when, for the Lord's supper? They were using it like fellowship. And not only that, they were gorging themselves. This wasn't what Jesus Christ, this looks nothing like what Jesus Christ did in the upper room at the Last Supper. It was like a fellowship and they were chasing the food down or, you know, it was just a different spirit. This isn't what Jesus had in mind at all. It says in verse 21, for in eating everyone taketh uh, before other his own supper and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus the same night in which he betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he brake it and said take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped saying this cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat of this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And he goes on and he gives some more instruction. But I think we can have confidence, can't we, that both baptism and the Lord's Supper are clearly taught in Paul's epistles. And again, it seems like a roundabout way to do it because he's having to deal with problems with baptism and problems with the Lord's Supper. But that's really what I want to get to to apply tonight. Because... The truth is, of all the distinctives that we could cover as a church and all the distinctives that we have as Eastside Baptist Church, I think it's telling that in the book of, Cor- in the book of Corinthians um, that Paul was having to deal with these saying, well, I'm baptized of this guy, I'm baptized of this guy. And then when it comes to the Lord's Supper, um, they're doing it the wrong way in the wrong spirit because I truly believe there are no distinctives more controversial than the two that we're dealing with tonight. When you think about baptism and you think about the Lord's Supper, I mean, everybody has a different opinion. Everybody has a different thought process and everyone comes from a different, uh, a different background and everyone has a different mindset about how it should be done. And there are questions like, well, how soon should they be baptized? They should be baptized right away. You know, this person got baptized right away in the Bible. And if they don't, are they saved? And, and why, or, you know, or maybe who should do the baptizing or, or who should we rebaptize? Because you talk about a Baptist distinctive historically, we've been known as rebaptizers. You know, we, we rebaptize those who come from a different faith. Or what churches should we accept baptisms from? You know, that's a big deal. And I, I've had to walk through that even with some right here. And, or about the Lord's Supper. Who gets invited to the Lord's Supper? Uh, who, when should it be done? 
How often should it be done? I mean, with COVID-19, should we do it differently? I mean, there's a lot of questions and they're all important. And, and because the Bible doesn't give every detail, then it's up to a pastor and a church to decide, okay, this is how we believe the Bible would have us do it. But the point I want to make is this. It's easy to get tripped up in the details of the ordinances. The church at Corinth, it was happening to them. I mean, that's not how I did it when I was growing up, or that's not how my pastor did it. We did it more often. We did it less often. You know, why should I have to get rebaptized? Why should someone else um, get, why shouldn't someone else get to be involved in, in our Lord's table? And, you, and you'd be surprised at how divisive it is, except these things have been divisive since the New Testament. These are divisions, and I want to encourage you in this. Okay. I want to encourage you and say you should be as concerned about the Bible's clear commands and direct teaching in other areas of life as you are about the ordinances. Meaning, for instance, it's possible to have a strong opinion about the Lord's Supper and yet have a critical and divisive spirit at the same time. And we can get upset about how tight a person is on rebaptism, but at the same time refuse forgiveness to someone who's wronged us. And we can say, well, you know, this church where my former pastor is open communion and this one's closed and they're close and these are hot button issues. But we have to be sure we're not we're just as passionate about other scriptural spiritual commands because it's easy to get caught up based on the New Testament pattern. It's easy to get caught up on the stance and lose the spirit. See, sometimes we embrace the distinctions that make us Baptists, but we forget about the distinctions that make us Christians. Love one another. You know, the church in Corinth, when they were coming together and they were gorging themselves instead of, you know, treating other people with patience when it came to the Lord's Supper, they weren't showing love. They were setting aside um, one, one crystal clear command and embracing the stance on the Lord's table. Or, or there were those in, you know, saying, well, I'm of Paul, Apollos or I'm of Paul and say, well, you know, my baptism is better than yours. And their spirit in the stance was wrong, even if they had a right, a right stance. You know, pray without ceasing, abstain from all appearances of evil. These are just as clear and we should be just as passionate about those as we are about our stances on any other clear commands. Just be careful as we go through these teachings that we don't get so lifted up about having the right stance that we forget to have the right spirit. It's just as important to be a Christian as it is to be a Baptist. And, and that may strike you the wrong way. I'm a, listen, I'm a capital B Baptist. Brother Mark, are you a capital B Baptist? I know he is. We're capital B Baptists. But you know, I just as much, I want to be a capital C Christian. See, I've said it many times before in this series, right position and right disposition. I've heard Brother Ruckman say the same thing. I love it. There's a balance to be struck with right stance and right spirit, meaning you can have both uh, because Jesus did. And I think most of us will be on the same page when it comes to the ordinances. But if there's an area of our distinctives that could lead to issues, it's in these distinctives, these ordinances. So let's be mindful of that. As we approach uh, more of our Baptist distinctives and, and even as we look more into here that we can't ever become so proud in a right stance that we lose a right spirit. And I'm in no way saying that these things aren't important. Our forefathers died for the, the issue of baptism, rebaptism. 
The Lord's Supper is so vital, it literally affected the physical effects, the physical well-being of someone who takes it unworthily, according to 1 Corinthians 11. These things, they do matter. I'm not saying they don't. But the way they're done can become bigger to some people than dealing with people in a way that pleases Christ. And it seemed like the right distinctive to bring that up. Because few distinctives have been more controversial. So I'm asking you then today, as we, as we kind of begin the next couple of weeks in baptism, Lord's Supper, how's your spirit about your positions? See, don't be Baptist at the expense of being a Christian. And you can be both. You can have the right position and the right disposition. It's the perfect balance. And your witness and our church's impact on this community, community will likely come down to how we treat the balance. Because I think we all know that there are fewer and fewer churches out there that are really just sticking with the Bible. And so if if we will stick with the Bible and yet at the same time have a spirit that people say, well, there's something different about those folks. I mean, I've met conservatives before, but I've never really met conservatives that are that friendly when you walk in the doors or that are that hospitable when it comes time to a meal or that you know that welcoming or that full of grace or I I mean I've been to conservative churches not really had a lot ask me and my family to come sit by them when it comes church time you know I mean there are little things that we can do as a church and honestly we ought to do even more of because of our positions Because people do have a view, if you have a tighter position on something, for some reason, well, I don't think it's for some reason, I think because there's been an imbalance potentially over the years. And that some people say, well, we have the right position and that's all that matters. No, the right position and the right disposition are the perfect balance. And Jesus Christ, he was a holy, holy, righteous God and is. And yet he had a spirit of grace and gentleness that drew people to him. And I think there's a way that if we can strike that balance, we're going to find a niche in reaching our community that few people have. Because there may be some that are really welcoming and full of grace. But if their positions aren't right, then, you know, they're missing something. There are some who may have right positions, but they're missing a spirit of grace. And if at Eastside Baptist Church, if we can be the church that people come and find both, I'm telling you, people are going to be looking for something like that in this culture. So let me just encourage you tonight. I know this is a different application, but as I was reading about baptism and reading about the New Testament, uh, the, the Lord's Supper, especially in the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, it reminded me that some of these things, as, as happy and grateful as we are that we have it right, some of these things can be so divisive that we can lose ourselves as Christians in our, in our effort to be Baptists. And let's just be balanced. I think God can help us to do this. And so I want to encourage you. We're gonna, we are going to have, it, it'll kind of serve as both, a time of invitation And a time of uh, a church prayer time as well. I'm going to encourage you like we normally do on Wednesdays. Let's uh, take some time and pray on our knees before the Lord in humility. And and the, the first thing is, again, if the message applies in that your positions have affected your your disposition in some way or another, let's be balanced. Because our culture needs a church that shows those at a perfect balance. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.